found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to uh, Luke chapter 9. We're going to get started by reading the Luke account. It's the shortest, three verses. And then the Matthew account has 12 verses, pretty short verses. And then uh, the Mark account, where we'll spend the bulk of our time. So we're going to go from Luke 9 to Matthew 14 to Mark 6. Before we begin any of this, though, let's take time for silent prayer to make certain that each one of us is prepared to handle eternal truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We recognize that this is a grace provision for us, that you have preserved this lampstand and supplied us with a local church where the word of God is taught line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. Father, we thank you for the the grace, the finances and transportation and health that allows us to be here today. And we ask for distractions to be set aside. We ask that you would take every thought captive in obedience to Christ Jesus. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. This is episode 35 in the Galilean ministry. Fearful Herod beheads John the Baptist. And uh, we'll get a look at it. It's quite uh, dramatic. It's a bit of a soap opera that we'll be dealing with. If uh, I don't know, uh, I don't want to know if uh, if there are particular soap operas that you are fond of or used to watch or whatnot, none of my business. But uh, this, uh, the the as the world turns and, and, and young and the restless and all, they, they got nothing on the Herods. The the family of Herod the Great and, and the, the, uh, the, the politics and the, the marriages and the sex and the affairs and everything going on uh, was beyond anything that today's soap opera writers could, could even imagine. So we'll focus on that. Starting in Luke uh, chapter 9, uh, we read in, of course, he sends out the 12. He called the 12 together in chapter 9 of verse 1 and he sends them out. And they begin to uh, to uh, minister as they're going out there two by two. Then in verse seven, now Herod the Tetrarch, Herod the Tetrarch heard all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had arisen again. Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. So John's John's dead already, and he's been dead for some time. When we read about it, when we study about it in this particular episode, it actually comes in in the form of a flashback. It comes in the form of of the guilt that uh, Herod is having over having executed uh, the Baptist and then hearing all the stories about the ministry of, of Jesus and all the rumors that were spread that it's John the Baptist come back to life. So that's our shortest account right there in verses 7 through 9. We turn over to Matthew 14 for a little bit of a longer account. Twelve verses, and they're shorter verses. Mark has um, 16 verses, but and they're longer verses. Mark has nearly double the number of words that Matthew has. Doesn't seem that much. You say, well, 16 verses compared to 12 verses, but... They're much longer verses, and he's much more wordy about it. Matthew 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus. 
And, and we'll define it for you. If you're not familiar with who Herod the Tetrarch is, we'll give you the whole outline on the Herods here this morning. Um, this is not Herod the Great. It's not Herod that murdered the babies in, in Bethlehem. That's, that's, uh, there's, uh, that was this guy's father. So at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. For when, and then the flashback. For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod, so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on, the plat on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests. He sent and had John beheaded in, in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and they went and reported to Jesus. All right, so there's the 12 verses there. Finally, in Mark chapter 6, Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. There are no discrepancies, as it were, nothing that's contrary or different from how Matthew expressed it or how Luke expressed it in his three short verses. The details are pretty well all in alignment with each other. And yet here in Mark's record, the, uh, the vividness of it gets drawn out a little bit more. Verse 14, And King Herod heard of it, that is, uh, sending these uh, disciples out in pairs. And uh, King Herod heard of it for his name, had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying he is Elijah. Others were saying he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, that is over and over again, John, whom I beheaded, has arisen. You know, you get the idea of the guilty conscience here. <laughs> that he didn't want to do it. He was trapped into doing it. Now he feels uh, guilty about having done it. And uh, with all of the superstitions of, uh, of a, uh, a Greek uh, religionist, you can expect that he's going to have some tremendous fear over what happens when, I mean, if we know, we know all the stories from Greek mythology about what happens when the gods were put to death or when a, a great hero was put to death and if he does come back and some of the different things that, that uh, a superstitious pagan like Herod might be afraid of. But others were saying he is Elijah and others were saying he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. Uh, I'm sorry, I skipped up a couple of verses, didn't I? But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has arisen. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. Stop to consider unbelievers who might occasionally, you know, have an interest in listening to Christian radio or reading a book of some sort. They're not even regenerate. But they have a, well, they have a perplexity, of course, because 
these things must be spiritually appraised. We understand why they can't they can't glean the spiritual impact of it, but they still have an interest in it, and it forms a, a curiosity factor to the unregenerate. So he's very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. Great entertainment value. Yeah, drag the prophet out here. Let me hear what he has to say. A strategic day. A strategic day came. Strategic is kind of an awkward translation there, but that's all right. Uh, a very pivotal day, a day of uh, extreme consequence. When Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. Now we actually have the, the greatest insight into who these wedding guests or who these birthday guests actually were, the men of influence, the men that Herod needed because they were the men that they were his cronies, his, his agents, those that kept his uh, domain uh, under control and so forth. He's got to keep them happy. Uh, so that the, the population stays under control. And uh, so they are lords. Um, those could be tribal leaders in terms of the Jewish leaders. Uh, military commanders. Those would, of course, all be Romans. And uh, the leading men of Galilee, many of whom could were, were, uh, be Gentiles in Tiberias and Sephoris and some of the Gentile centers. Galilee was largely a Gentile population center with the Jewish exceptions being Nazareth, Cana, uh, Capernaum, and so forth. Capernaum was largely Gentile too. So when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Keep in mind, she had to go out to uh, speak to the mother. This We, we understand the nature of this party uh, is such that the men and the women are segregated. This is one of the after-dinner Greek uh, dinner parties. And we'll give you all the details on this here this morning. Uh, whatever your imagination might jump to in terms of a worst-case scenario, uh, your imagination is only about uh, a fifth of the way there, <laughs> unless you have a real vivid imagination and you understand the, the Greco-Roman um, paganism. We dealt with it a little bit in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 because some of the Corinthian men were hosting these kind of dinner parties and uh, felt that, hey, it's okay. All sins are forgiven. There's no more, no more, uh, no more law. We're not under law. We're under grace. And they were hosting these, these uh, symposiums. All right. Anyway, the, uh, Herodias is not present. None of the women are present. The only women that are present, there's no wives present. There are women present, but they're the dancing girls that are present. All right. So Herodias uh, is outside and uh, Salome, the daughter here, not named in the scriptures, but named in secular history. The daughter has to go out in order to consult to come back in immediately in a hurry while the... Uh, while the effect is still uh, being felt. We'll talk about that too. So, uh, but she has to go out. And uh, the mother, of course, prompts her that she wants John the Baptist's head. Uh, so the mother says the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The platter was the daughter's idea. The mom didn't say anything about a platter, but the mom just said, bring me a head and and uh, I guess the daughter thought that a platter was a nice arrangement. I don't know. If you're, if you're carrying a head to give to somebody, I guess a, a platter is better than a basket or a bag or something. Anyway, this was the daughter's idea. 
And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Two things that work against him. The, the horrible, horrible pagan superstition about oaths. See, we should have half of the diligence that the pagans have with their oaths. Because God holds us to our oaths. He holds us to our vows, which is why he says you're better off not making a vow. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Walk in the church age in Christian integrity and don't be making any vows. Because if you do take vows, he is the God of truth and he will hold you to your vows. So um, we've taught vows in the past. It was more of an Old Testament feature than a New Testament, but you can still make a vow today. Uh, we make wedding vows and when we stand uh, at the altar in the presence of God. Um, there aren't too many other vows that we habitually make, which is good because Scripture warns us against it. But the pagans make all kinds of vows and they are terrified of, uh, of being faithless in those vows because there's consequences when he crosses the, the river of death into, into Hades, into the afterlife. Uh, the, the unfulfilled vows uh, will become matters for him to deal with. We had to do a course in mythology at some point. That'll at least give us an orientation to uh, these pagans when we encounter them. But because of the oaths, and then secondly, because of the dinner guests. Because of the dinner guests. And, and he cannot lose face in front of these guys. If he goes back on his promise to this girl, who is really of no consequence, who is just property, right? Uh, a, a political daughter is not even his daughter, but a political daughter, all she serves is uh, wedding material to try to link up his family with, with somebody beneficial, right? The only value she has. And even she has even less of that now because she's got her body on display here. She's come into the capacity of this, of this stripper, of this, of this dancer, all right? So she has no value or very little value or depending on who his friends are, maybe her value just increased. We don't know how that works, all right? But she's, he has no love for her, no agape love for her, no phileo love for her, no rapport with her. She's simply a commodity that, uh, that uh, is appealing to the lust and appealing to the passions and the things of the carnal mind. Now, she make, he makes a promise to her. It's like uh, you make a promise to someone of no consequence. And if you can't, Keep that promise. What good are you for promises to men who are of consequence? See, and, and here's his, his military men, his commanders, the leading men, the nobles, the leaders, all the ways that they're described here. And he needs these guys and they need him. And if, if, if they can't trust each other, then um, they got problems. And the moment that the suspicion, even the shred of suspicion is there, that one of their fellow nobles is untrustworthy, you have to uh, bring about their death. <laughs> we'll see that this morning as well. The, the Herodians were masters at the art of assassination. Um, Herod the Tetrarch, one of the things most noteworthy about him, not only that he was a son of Herod the Great, he was a son that lived. <laughs> Herod murdered more sons than lived when it comes right down to it. He murdered more wives. Herod the Great was a polygamist, and a um, number of his wives didn't make it because they were involved in the collusion. So um, the idea of a faithless vow, the idea of an oath, and you, if, you, if you can't be trusted to follow through on your oath, um, 
Herod would be setting himself up for all these dinner guests who immediately put him under suspicion and, and bring about his uh, bring about his downfall, which, by the way, does eventually happen. Uh, he is removed from his throne because of his uh, schemes. And uh, we'll see that here by the end of the the end of the session. All right. Well, we've gone through the narrative now. We've read through the story three times. Let's get some details on it. Uh, there's really three things we're going to glean. And uh, the first one is basically a background. So point one, for those of you that like keeping notes and follow the outlines, the synoptic gospels all record Herod's fear as a flashback to his execution of John the Baptist. We don't actually have, we don't know how long previously to this it took place. We just know that when Jesus commissions the 12, sends them out, and now there's seven teams that are just, Blanketing Galilee. Seven Bible teaching teams are blanketing Galilee, and word is just spreading. This is when uh, Herod gets alarmed that, that uh, John the Baptist had returned. There's too many miracles going on. There's too much taking place, and his guilt is, uh, is uh, coming to the forefront. And so we're provided this story as a flashback. At some point, we haven't seen... Um, John the Baptist, since he was in prison and he sent messengers to Christ saying, are you the expected one or should we await for another one? And then Christ sent an encouraging message back. And we didn't see him from that point to, to now. So sometime in between then, he was executed. We don't know exactly the timing on this birthday party for Herod. Now, Herod the Tetrarch, just so you can keep him straight, he is not Herod the Great. History records him as Herod Antipas. Most of Herod's family had Herod as a surname. And so then their second name then becomes important. And some guys we know like Philip the, the Tetrarch. We just call him Philip, but he's really Herod Philip the Tetrarch. And this guy here we call Herod the Tetrarch is really Herod Antipas the Tetrarch. He's the son of Herod the Great. And it's important when you when you track these sons, you have to know their moms because Herod had so many wives. Uh, this particular wife was Malface, who was a Samaritan woman. See, Herod, <laughs> Herod had all kinds of problems, um, not the least of which is that he was trying to be Jewish, but he wasn't. He was an Edomite. He was Edomian. And so um, he married some good Jewish girls. He married a granddaughter of of one of the Maccabee princes, uh, uh, John Hyrcanus, he marries a, a granddaughter of, of, uh, of Jewish royalty. And uh, he became a proselyte. Uh, he converted. Uh, Herod's father actually converted to Judaism, became a, a devout practicing Jew by, by religious faith and practice. So Herod marries a Jewish princess, but he's also got some Samaritans in his territory. Not a problem. Let's marry a Samaritan. Wife, and that was the story there with Malthace, uh, wanting to, to form other uh, arrangements. He marries a, a woman named Cleopatra and some other things. So in any event, Herod was the consummate politician with all kinds, trying to keep every base covered. Anyway, this particular son was Herod Antipas, born uh, to Herod the Great and Malthace. He became the Tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. As a matter of fact, um, after the death of Herod the Great, the, his kingdom wasn't then received by any one ruler. It was split up into four parts. That's why they were called the, the Tetrarchs or the Tetrarchy. And if you hold your finger there and glance back, remember when uh, they fled to Egypt, Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus fled to Egypt. 
because Herod the Great was uh, was going to be murdering all those babies. Then they come back after Herod dies, reading at the end of Matthew chapter 2. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, by the way, that's history. Josephus calls him Herod Archelaus. When Herod Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee. And who was ruling over Galilee? Herod Antipas, called in our text here, Herod the Tetrarch. All right. So that kind of gives you the, uh, the breakdown on that. He, uh, Herod Antipas, married... Uh, a woman, I forget her name now, she was the daughter of the king of Nabatea. Nabatea was an Arab nation. They were, they were Arabs. Um, and they were south and east. They were in the, the wilderness. They were nomads and caravan raiders and things like that. And uh, anyway, so he marries, he marries this Arabian princess and um, forming alliances, very political, just like his father had done, until he seduces his sister-in-law and decides he's going to marry her. And uh, Herodias says, okay, I'll divorce Philip and marry you on one condition. You have to get rid of that Arabian princess. So he does. And, uh, well, he tries to have her killed. (laughs) And so she flees back to daddy, back to the Arabian land of Nabatea. And that eventually, years later, is going to come back to haunt him because the the Arabs come sweeping in and they overrun a a considerable amount of of Galilee and a considerable amount of Herod's territory, which doesn't make the Romans happy at all. (laughs) The Romans are not happy with that. You know, they they're pleased to let Herod be a little puppet king, but he he's got to keep Arabs from sweeping in, you know, and and overrunning the Roman legions. So uh, anyway, because of that, uh, the Romans will depose Antipas and, and Herodias. And we'll talk about that here by the end of today. Second character in this pathetic drama, and actually this one's not so bad. He's kind of the victim in the process. Herod Philip. Herod Philip. He was Herodias' first husband. She divorced him to uh, marry Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas. He actually never ruled anything. He was one son of Herod's who uh, never ruled anything, never wanted to rule anything. He lived in Rome. He had... Uh, considerable treasure, and he basically lived as a wealthy noble and private citizen living in Rome. He was the son of Herod the Great and a woman named Mary Amni. Um, as I mentioned, Herod was a polygamist, and wouldn't you know it, two of his wives had the same name. <laughs> and so scholars will usually call them Mary Amni I and Mary Amni II, as it were. Uh, Mary Amni I was the granddaughter of, of uh, the Maccabees, so she was the Jewish princess. Uh, Mary Amni II was not, and that's uh, the mother that produced this particular Philip. He's not the same Philip as comes up later as Philip the Tetrarch. Uh, that's a different Philip, and you want to keep your Philip straight when you keep your Herod straight. Uh, so don't confuse him with Philip the Tetrarch. Philip the Tetrarch comes up later on in the Gospels uh, because he's the one that ends up marrying this dancing girl we're going to look at here today. Later on, I don't know if he was president of the party or, or whatnot, but uh, at some point he found her to be desirable and... Uh, and married her. Third character in the drama is Herodias. Feminine form of Herod. In fact, it's the same name as Herod. It's just 
feminine gender rather than masculine gender. Now she is the daughter of Aristobulus and Bernice. Are you keeping this all straight? I'll, I'll have a picture for you here in a moment. You see, anybody know who Aristobulus is? Aristobulus is another one of Herod's sons. So she, by marrying Philip, she's marrying her uncle. And then by divorcing Philip to marry Herod Antipas, she's marrying another uncle, a half-brother of her first husband. Because Aristobulus was a uh, son of uh, Herod. In fact, a son of Herod and the first Mary and the Jewish princess. Uh, Aristobulus has a much better claim to anything than, uh, than, than Herod uh, Antipas does. Until he dies. <laughs> after, after you're murdered, you don't have much of a claim for the throne. So Herodias is the daughter of Herod, of, uh, Herod Aristobulus, and Bernice, accompanied Herod Antipas into Gaul when Caliga, Caligula exiles him. This is much later down the road after the Romans are tired of, of Antipas. They send him to France, and uh, that's where he's going to live out his days. And to be, I guess, positive, um, she goes with him. Uh, Caligula gave, gave her the option of not. Uh, that uh, you know, she didn't have to join him in the exile, but she did, and so she dies in France with uh, with Herod. Um, lots more to say about Herodias, but you'll see her unfold in this. She's the one that's completely scheming. That that absolutely, you know, uh, Herod's happy. He didn't like being preached at. He didn't like being condemned. He didn't like you know being told by this Jewish prophet that his marriage was wrong. But he wasn't going to murder the guy. He just put him in prison and then sit there and listen to him occasionally and see what he had to say kind of thing, kind of amusement. But uh, that was not enough for Herodias. Herodias, it's not enough that he's off the streets, that he's not publicly uh, being an embarrassment. She wants him dead. She wants him dead. And it's almost like Ahab and Jezebel. You know, Ahab would have been fun, dandy, and happy with, with Elijah just off the streets, hiding in a cave, not preaching anymore. Jezebel was not happy with that. Hunt him down and kill him, no matter what. Jezebel was the one that was the, the uh, vindictive one desiring Elijah's death. And we find the similar pairing here with Herod and with uh, Herodias. The last character in this drama is the daughter. Now, the Bible doesn't give us her name of Salome. Uh, Secular historians do. We've got it in, all throughout Josephus. We have it in other records, other accounts that record her name. She's been the object of all kinds of uh, Renaissance artwork and all kinds of uh, statues and paintings, operas, uh, Oscar Wilde and his play and a number of uh, ballets and operas that have been uh, created about Salome. And she's the final uh, character in this drama. Now she's Herodias' daughter, but her daughter by the first husband. She was just an infant when, uh, when uh, they had that affair in Rome. And, and, and so Herodias divorced Philip and, and uh, Herod divorced his Arab wife and, and so forth. Uh, daughter of Herod, of Philip of Rome and Herodias. She danced for her stepfather, danced for her stepfather's political ambitions and married her half-uncle Philip, Philip the Tetrarch. I don't know how well that's going to, that's big, but the typing is still small in it. And I filled the screen with it. Right, if you've got sharp eyes and you're near the front, you might be able to read the names. Otherwise, I'll just 
have to underline and draw pictures. This is Herod the Great, who's actually the fourth sibling, Phazael, Joseph, Pharoahs. Uh, these guys got murdered. This guy was a schemer, along with Herod's sister, Salome. Okay? Not to be confused with the dancing girl, Salome. So, four boys and a girl. Uh, Phazael and Joseph don't uh, feature very prominently, so I've not read much about them. But Pharoahs and Salome were schemers. And they were constantly, constantly, constantly whispering into Herod the Great's ear about who his threats were and who was uh, working against him and all the rest. Of course, they had designs of their own and so forth. Um, All of these being children of Antipater. Great character. You've got to like Antipater. And his, uh, his dealings with, uh, with uh, Caesar and, and Octavius and all the rest. Anyway, let me color now in red. These are the wives. Doris, Mariamne, the other Mariamne. You know, if you're going to marry multiple women, isn't it kind of dumb for them to have the same name, couldn't you? You get confused. Malthace and Cleopatra. That's Cleopatra of Jerusalem, not... Cleopatra, the Egyptian queen. Cleopatra, she lived at that time. Cleopatra, the Egyptian queen, was alive at that time and was an arch enemy of Herod the Great. She despised Herod the Great. She tried to convince Mark Antony to, to murder Herod the Great. She was absolutely livid with Herod. And um, that was probably the one thing going in, in Herod's favor when Octavius finally defeated Antony and Cleopatra, that uh, Octavius, who became Caesar Augustus, decided that, well, she hated you so much, you must be on my side. Because <laughs> Herod played both sides in that civil war. Anyway, but because Cleopatra of Egypt hated him so much, uh, I think Augustus had reason to trust Herod. All right, now, all these lines then bring down the children. And um, the ones we're really worried about now at this point are Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas. Here's Herod Antipas right here. Is that green too light? Fuchsia. I like fuchsia. Herod Antipas right there. Here's Herod Philip. Private citizen, never ruled anything, lived in Rome, just was pleased to spend his daddy's money and and all that. I mean, there's plenty of tribute that was coming in and lots of allowance money and so forth. Archelaus was the one that uh, when they came back from Egypt, uh, they were warned by the angel that said, Archelaus is in Judea. Don't go to the realm of Judea. So they avoided that and they went to Galilee so they could be under Herod Antipas instead. Archelaus was a tyrant. He was probably insane. He was evil. He was awful. Uh, and he was such a rotten ruler that he didn't last but a couple of years. And with all the rebellions and all the things going on, Rome finally had enough of it. And Rome said, okay, you're done. They uh, removed him, got him out of the picture, and, and put a governor in his place, which is why you've got Pontius Pilate in a Roman who's over the Jerusalem area around Judea, and the whole Herodian thing is, is kind of, it's in Galilee, it's in Perea, it's in other regions, is because Archelaus blew it in, uh, in his leadership of that area there. And then this other Philip got the region of uh, the Tetrarchy of Decapolis and the regions to the east of the Sea of Galilee. Those are the ones that we really work up in the scriptures. By the time you get to the book of Acts, you've got some of these other ones that come along. Uh, Agrippa, two different Agrippas in the book of Acts that you have to keep your Agrippa straight. 
And uh, anyway, let me switch now. Here is Herodias, and here is Salome. So they're all interrelated <laughs> from marriages, multiple marriages, divorces, and remarriages. And in some cases, it gets really complicated. Salome is, for Herod here, she's his stepdaughter, right? But she's also his niece because her father is his half-brother. But she's also his grand-niece because her mother is also his niece. Herodias is Herod's niece, but he marries her, so she becomes his wife. And so her daughter is his grandniece, stepdaughter. See how complicated this gets? And later on, when I mentioned when Salome marries this Philip guy, she actually marries her mother's uncle. You follow that? Because Herodias here is the, is the daughter of Aristobulus. I didn't highlight him in Fuchsia. I should have. Aristobulus right there. And that's the father of Herodias. So when Salome marries Philip, she's marrying her mother's uncle, which makes her her mother's aunt. Right? Make sense? To, uh, to Jewish law, which when uh, John the Baptist is rebuking him here, when he says it's not lawful, you're violating the standards of the law, you are nominally Jewish. Your, your grandfather was Jewish, a practitioner of the Jewish faith. Um, your father married the, uh, the Jewish princess of the Maccabees, of the, you know, the Hasmonean dynasty, and, and they, they were trying to have a Jewish legitimacy to their, to their rule. The Herodians, the Herodians tried to have it all. They tried to have a Jewish legitimacy, right? Even though they were Edomites. They tried to have a Jewish legitimacy under, with a Roman military backing them with a Greek culture. They tried to have it all, and they ended up just upsetting everybody. <laughs> so John the Baptist said, you know what? You can't marry your sister. You can't marry your sister. You know, your, your, this is your brother's wife. And, and you're going to divorce your wife to marry her? So, you know, she's going to divorce your brother to marry you? And uh, plus, she's your niece to begin with. So, you know, when you go back to the, to the law, and you, and you could not marry your sister, you could not marry your cousin, you could not marry your aunt, you could not marry, you know, because your aunt... You know, her nakedness was your uncle's nakedness. That was the language of, of Levitical law there at that point. So anyway, John was very right to rebuke him that, that, that all of these divorces and all of these marriages and all of this, you are not operating under Mosaic law. You're not operating under the system of righteousness that God has uh, established for our nation to function under, which didn't make him very happy. And uh, so he put him into prison. However, I will say, all of this intermarrying of sisters and half-sisters and cousins and uncles and aunts and stuff, that is extremely common in the pagan world. Extremely common among the Greeks, among the Babylonians, among the Persians, among the Romans, among the Europeans throughout Western civilization. 
all the intermarrying between the, the different royal houses of, of nations throughout Europe, if you know much about European history, that was, uh, that was fairly common. All right, so that's... I should print out a handout of that. So I think uh, Grace Notes has a handout on that. There's a study on the Herods and Grace Notes that if you can get a scorecard to try to keep them. But even scorecards have troubles because you've got to have dotted lines and you've got to scratch those out when they get divorced and then have other dotted lines. And, and this this chart doesn't do very well because it keeps Herodias kind of separated out from uh, from her parents. Anyway, there's the cast of characters we have to deal with. One of these guys, though, Herod has a servant. And one of his servants is a guy named Chusa. And he gets saved. And he becomes a, a leader in the early church in, uh, in the book of Acts. And so there's a, there's a blessing. There's a reason why. And you start to wonder, was it because John the Baptist was in prison all that time? That the servants came to know Christ? Came to get saved? We think it's kind of a bummer, of course, that you have to live in prison and lose your head. But fruit was born out of that. All right, the growing public acclaim for Jesus sparked rumors. The growing public acclaim for Jesus sparked rumors. Rumor number one was that John the Baptist had returned. Basically four rumors that got sparked. Rumor number one, John the Baptist had returned. Mark 6:14 and Luke 9, 7. The Matthew account didn't re- reference that, but the Mark and Luke account did. Um, I think I'm right on that. Maybe I just omitted a Matthew reference. Did I just omit it? Okay, it doesn't mention the rumor. It just mentions his conclusion in Matthew. Anyway, rumor number one, John the Baptist had returned. Interesting rumor. Because during his life, what miracles did he do? None whatsoever. John the Baptist did no miracles whatsoever. In fact, that's that's staggering. It's unique. Every other Old Testament prophet was given miracles as a testimony and a sign for credentials. That, you know, Isaiah, it's it's one thing to say, okay, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. But, I mean, to be honest, if you're going to predict something like that that's 700 years out, well, you know, anyone can say things. How's the population going to know you're truly a prophet? Well, you're given signs, you're given wonders, you're given credentials, the the testimony to the validity of your prophetic message. Well, John the Baptist didn't need the, the validity of the prophetic message. His announcement was the Christ is here, and then there was the Christ. Came to be baptized, the Holy Spirit descended as a dove. The, the credentials were Christ himself. So John the Baptist did no miracles at all. And yet you wonder if he was expected to do miracles because his message was so powerful. And the fact that so many were going out to be baptized, the fact that he had a tremendous following at one point, um, that there were expectations that he would do miracles, even though he never did. So the rumor that he'd come back to life. Second rumor was that Elijah had arrived. Uh, of course, they were eager to see Elijah arrive. They thought he was Elijah when he showed up the first time. When John the Baptist showed up, they said, are you Elijah? You know, when Jesus showed up, they said, are you Elijah? Because the Old Testament ended in Malachi with the promise that Elijah's coming. Elijah's coming, and then they've had 400 years of no books of the Bible being written, and the, the last part of, of Micah, uh, or Malachi, rather, chapter 4, says, Behold, I'm going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. 
He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. That's how their Bible ends. Elijah's on the way. So um, there were a lot of expectations that Elijah had arrived and they thought that the Baptist might have been Elijah and now here's Christ doing all these miracles. I think, well, maybe this is Elijah showing up. Third rumor is that he's uh, a prophet like one of the prophets of old and actually that's the true rumor. Because he is a prophet, and he is like, greater than, but like the Old Testament prophets. He is a spirit-filled Old Testament prophet. Fourth rumor, that he actually is one of those prophets of old return, like somebody, not Elijah, but somebody like, uh, uh, you know, Samuel or Moses or, or uh, you know, Joel or Amos, somebody uh, that had been around before besides Elijah coming back. Anyway, those are the four different rumors. What does Herod jump to? Rumor number one. John the Baptist has come back to haunt me because I had him killed, right? The idea of haunting, the idea of, uh, of a ghost coming back, right? Ever read Macbeth? <laughs> Ever read, I mean, it, it's featured in all kinds of literature from Shakespeare to uh, all the mythologies, all of the, the, the fears of paganism. All the, the, I mean, the, the Greek gods were so vengeful. And the idea of the, uh, the, the graces and the muses and, and how would fate turn on you if you had done something uh, uh, wrong uh, to a righteous man and so forth, that, you know, the, the, the graces might turn against you and all of the fears that, that the Greek paganism would be terrified of, that's what Herod's dealing with. So he immediately jumps to this conclusion. Herod's guilt over executing John the Baptist led him to insist upon rumor number one. And he makes that declaration himself in Matthew 14, too, without hearing any of the rumors. He just immediately jumps out there to uh, Elijah has returned, or to John the Baptist has returned. And that leads us to the flashback, the actual details of the flashback. And for this, we'll pretty much just stay in Mark we'll have some Matthew references as well. The first thing I think we want to spend some time on is this public proclamation. John the Baptist had made a public proclamation against Herod's marriage to Herodias. Made it public. I mean, as if it wasn't public anyway. When, when you're the king and you divorce your wife and you send her packing... And uh, and then a new wife comes in. It's that's pretty well public. You know, if if President Bush divorced Laura and remarried, uh, you know, married some kind of young intern or something, you, you think that'd be in the news? Yeah, I think it'd be in the news. Um, so it's it's already a public issue. But then for a preacher to actually enter into the White House and to his face in front of everybody be confrontational over this, that's what we're looking at. And um, in verse uh, 17 and 18, we're still in Mark chapter 6. Herod himself had sent and uh, had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying, this is an imperfect verb, John had been saying continuously and repeatedly over a period of time. In the imperfect tense, we have the continuous action in past time. So it'd be like a series of messages 
um, on this particular subject. We would say um, uh, last year, uh, Pastor Bob had been teaching about the book of Daniel. Right. And, and we've got evidence for that. We've got uh, there's 20 MP3 files on there, all in the book of Daniel that all were in the past tense. So we say uh, Pastor Bob had been speaking or had been teaching uh, in a chapter by chapter uh, study in the book of Daniel. That's the language that we have here. John had been saying to Herod. It wasn't just a one time message. It wasn't just a one time, um, you know, one on one private rebuke from a brother to another brother saying this isn't biblical this is an ongoing continuous series of messages that are confrontational to the king speaking to herod not with herod to herod you understand the difference there it's it's entirely different if i'm speaking with you or if i'm speaking to you as a communicator of the word of god This is a long series of messages over time to Herod. It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So this is a condemnation. This is a a rebuke. This is coming from a prophet of Israel. The uh, equivalent text there is Matthew 14.4, but we'll just, in the interest of time, we'll quit the flipping back and forth between them. We'll just stay here in Mark. Now, I want to consider something here. Because people will jump all over this and say, ha, this is our license for political activism. Prophets of Israel were specifically accountable to the Lord for the rebuke of kings and his earthly theocracy. Let's observe some differences between Israel in the Old Testament and the United States of America in a dispensation of the church application. Because, see, crusaders get all up on this soapbox and they get up on this horse and they're going to march and they're going to do all these things in the realm of politics. And they use Scripture to validate what they're doing. And this is a favorite that they like to use. That we have the right to, you know, uh, rebuke a godless leader. I see we have a responsibility to pray for a leader to pray for every leader whether he's godly or godless you know it doesn't romans 13 doesn't say pray for your leaders so long as they're the ones you voted for and don't pray for the leaders if the ones you didn't vote for made it in there right and say well i only i only pray for my leader during certain administrations if it matches my political party no we pray for all our leaders now, there's a distinction to be made here, and let's remind ourselves, we're reading gospel passages, and so we have the illusion of being in the New Testament, because these written records are contained within the written New Testament, but the events described take place in the Old Testament, that prior to the, the day of Pentecost, we're still dealing with the stewardship of Israel, and we're still dealing with a Jewish population living in the land of promise under the Jewish stewardship of Israel. All right. And in that realm, who was in charge? God was in charge. It's a theocracy, a theocracy. And initially they didn't have a king. They had Moses. They had a prophet who was to them as a king, 
but he was a prophet. They didn't have a king. When they settled in their lands under Joshua, they had tribal uh, elders. They didn't have a king. They had prophets like Samuel. They had a priesthood. They didn't have a king. When they demanded a king, where did they have to go to get a king? They had to go to a prophet. That's right. So they got a king all right. Man, yeah, they got one. They got Saul. There's a, but they had to go to a prophet to give him a king. Saul uh, and, and then Samuel gave him their second king. See? And the role of the prophets, not only in anointing the kings, but then when the kings were messing up, who was it that came to rebuke the king? It was the prophets. That's right. So the role of an Old Testament prophet uh, of course, they had a communication responsibility. They had to stand up and declare, thus says the Lord. And they had to deliver Bible class to the whole nation. They would, they would work hand in hand with the priesthood in offering sacrifices. See, typically, unless you were a Levitical priest, you couldn't offer sacrifices. But, but prophets, even though they weren't Levitical, prophets had sacrificial privileges. They could, they could bring animal offerings. They also had a political role. They had a political role because kings would be surrounded by advisors. They'd be surrounded by cronies. They'd be surrounded by, well, look who Herod's got himself surrounded by. Right? Guys that are there to support him or execute him and take his place. (laughs) God said, no, my king is going to be surrounded by my prophet to listen to my message. And so prophets, Old Testament prophets, prophets of Israel, were specifically accountable to the Lord for the rebuke of kings in his earthly theocracy. And we're in a, there's a string of scriptures, and we'll spend the rest of our time looking at some of these. John the Baptist's rebuke of Herod is exactly in keeping with that precedent. That's exactly in keeping with that precedent. Now, to try to take that forward into the church... To try to take that forward into the church and make a, a application for our day and age. That is not in keeping with the precedent of, an Israel, of a prophet of Israel, nor can it be established by New Testament scriptures. Nor can it be established by New Testament scriptures. You cannot find a church age scripture text giving any gift, much less every gift, the right to go to the king and rebuke him in the name of the Lord, thus saith the Lord. You are not leading my people. Why? We're not his people. America is not his people. Bugs me to death. When people try to quote, you know, uh, uh, and say, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and repent, then then I will hear their prayers and I will heal their land. As if somehow the United States of America can apply that scripture. America is not God's people. We are not God's land. We are a Gentile nation. We have no claim to covenant promise. So let's look at some of these. We'll spend some time on it. Start, let's start in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 15. We can look at the early part of the chapter and then the end of the chapter. and We'll see both sides of it here.
help if I turn to the right book. That was bad. That wasn't even Second Samuel. That was. I don't know how I ended up in that book. At least it was chapter 15. All right, First Samuel 15. And Samuel said to Saul, Jehovah, Yahweh, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Who's God's people? Israel. His earthly nation in the midst of earthly nations. So Jehovah sent me to anoint you. To, to be an anointed one is to be a Christ. Christ is anointed. The anointed one. Prophets are anointed. Priests are anointed. Kings are anointed. Of course, Jesus Christ is prophet, priest, and king, and he is the Christ. But Samuel was a Christ. He was an anointed prophet. Priests are anointed. So the same, Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. If the Lord anoints you to be king over this people, intrinsic with that is that you are accountable to the Lord. You've got to listen to his word. And prophets were the instruments who could speak to those kings in direct, confrontational, no fooling around, no blunt, I mean, just as blunt as you can imagine, language. The king was sovereign over the nation, but he was subject to God, and the prophet was the messenger, the agent, that communicated that to the king. Does that make sense? All right. It's like... You know, in, in, in the church, the pastor is the sovereign, is the authority of a local church. But it's not that he's a, a tyrant and he's a rule unto himself, because who does he answer to? Who anointed the pastor and placed him as the head of that flock? Christ did. That's right. So if, you, if, if these elements do have a church age application, they're ecclesi, ecclesiological or ecclesiastical, they apply to the church. You cannot combine ecclesiological and ecclesiastical. It just doesn't come out. Ecclesiological astical. It's not, not good. But there, the New Testament application we do have is church-based, not political-based. Not political-based. All right. So, uh, thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. See, God deals with the Jewish nation, but he also deals with Gentile nations. And now he's dealing with Amalek, the Gentile nation. How he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey, everything. If it breathes, kill it. From the newborn babe just born this morning, kill it. So there's the instructions. And, and here the table is set and Saul goes out and he blows it. Absolutely blows it. He, uh, in verse 8, I mean, he, he wins the middle military battle. Then he loses the follow-up. In verse 8, he captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and kept him alive. Utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly. Well, who says it was good? Saul said it was good. God said, destroy it. Saul said, oh, this is good. These are good sheep, good oxen, good lambs. So verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my command. 
Then Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel. Behold, he set up a monument for himself. Then turned and proceeded on down to uh, Gilgal. Is that what we're really about? Are we about great achievements here on earth and setting up monuments for ourselves? Or are we about obeying the Lord and his commands and his instructions? So Samuel came to Saul. Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I've carried out the command of the Lord. You know, it's like someone that walks in today and says, you know, praise God, hallelujah, brother, and all this other excitement. You know, the Lord's really working today, and oh, we're glorifying Christ. When you know they're not, they're glorifying themselves. They're building monuments to themselves. They, they say they're serving the Lord, but they're going to be the Lord, Lord crowd on the, at the great white throne. And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. So don't, don't try to talk yourself into the fact that you're doing great things for Jesus when you're really doing great things for yourself. So, you know, Samuel was going to hear any of that. Saul walks in and says, you know, blessed are you of the Lord. I've carried out the command of the Lord. And then Samuel, great sarcasm. I love Samuel. He says, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen, which I hear? <laughs> you know, Saul's trying to be all impressed with how he obeyed God. And here Samuel is saying, well, why do I hear the bleeding of these sheep? What is this I hear? Wonderful sarcasm. It's convicting to the core. And Saul, notice, well, you know, um, 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 verse 15. They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we've already destroyed. So he's already tried to cover. He said, oh, 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 well, yeah, okay. Uh, but we only, we, we, we only saved the best, but we saved them so that we could offer sacrifices. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's the ticket. Right? We just want to offer, we, we saved them so we can offer sacrifices. No, that's not why they saved them. That's the excuse they're trying to make now. But that's not why they saved them. And even if that was why they saved them, they'd still be wrong. Because God didn't tell them, you know, save out the best and sacrifice. And he said, kill them all. So uh, then uh, Samuel says, well, let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. <laughs> In other words, I have a message to deliver, and the message was sent before you made up that little piddly excuse you just came up with. Let me tell you what the Lord said to you last night. And then um, the reminder was to go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites. And, and why did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And then here comes the second excuse in verse 20. Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. I did. It wasn't my fault. Uh, I went on the mission and, and that, but the people took some of the spoil. Verse 21. Not my fault. I couldn't help it. They, you know, I can't answer for what all the people are doing. I wanted to kill them all, but the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen. <laughs> so are you blaming others? Are you, or are you not the king? Are you not responsible for what the people do? Anyway, it's, uh, it's bad news for Saul at this point. And um, when he turns to go, Saul sees the edge of his robe in verse 27, and it tore. So Samuel said to, said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. The one thing these pagan-minded kings are terrified of is losing what they have. And who's trying to take it from them? 
and this will begin the uh, the insanity on Saul's part is the uh, the neighbor better than you, the man after God's own heart, the godly king that's going to come and be lifted up, a king that will have legitimacy because Samuel's going to anoint him. So this begins Saul's fear of a man that he doesn't even know yet, which will show up. We have to end with this, but you'll see the role of the prophets. Look what else Samuel does. So rebuking the king is one thing, right? We don't have license for that. We're not called. We are not prophets of a of a uh, uh, a covenant nation in a theocracy on the, on the earth. And we are not prophets by gift and office to speak forth in divine utterances to a theocracy on the earth. So the idea of trying to find an equivalent role for ministry today is right off the bat alien to the whole concept. We're not prophets. We're not in a theocracy. God's not speaking to kings uh, or to the president of the United States like he spoke to to, uh, political rulers over his people. Notice the follow-up to this. Samuel does what Saul wouldn't do. He puts Agag to death. He, he says, bring me Agag, and he brings Agag, and Agag thinks he's, he's, he's pretty chipper about this whole thing. He's, he's happy to be alive. He thinks, hey, this is great. You know, I'll live out my days in exile and whatever else. You know, how many tyrants, uh, we remove them, and then they, they live a fat life in exile in some other country somewhere kind of thing. So Agag came to him cheerfully, and Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord again. God, prophets were rough characters. Absolute rough characters. He took Agag and chopped him up into pieces. And then he sent him on tour. And you can actually cover more ground if you split him up, and that's what he did. Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went to his house. And, but he sent these pieces around on a tour as, uh, as an example. And so... You know, that's the the violence and that's the rough ministry and that's the tough nature of prophets. So when when the Lord sends him to Bethlehem and he walks into Bethlehem and he shows up and all the elders of Bethlehem are a little concerned. Chapter 16 and verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem and the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, uh, do you come in peace? <laughs> Prophets were not to be messed with, right? Have you caught the drift on that? And the rebuke of a king. We're out of time. We'll uh, come back to Second Samuel and Isaiah. We'll, we'll look at some more of these other ones here when we bring this subject up again next week. But he shows up, and you know these elders of Bethlehem got to be wondering, uh, you know, who's going to get chopped to pieces here? <laughs> you know, what kind of rebuke? What kind of judgment? What kind of wrath? Are you here with good news? What kind of message are you bringing? So uh, anyway, and this is the chapter where he anoints David, the young boy out there with the sheep. Let's close with prayer. Any, any questions? Any thoughts on that? Do you, do you see what, a light, what John the Baptist was doing when he went to, Herod, uh, to Herod and Herodias and rebuked him over a series of messages? That is keeping with his capacity as an Old Testament prophet. In the spirit of, of, of Samuel. All right. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for this day. And I pray that we will glean understandings and, and also, Father, applications for where we are presently in the church, what we can apply for your glory and for your good pleasure. We thank you in Christ Jesus' name.
Amen.